Can playfulness be a mode of spiritual practice and have a place in theological education? Lakeisha Lockhart is the Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Virginia Union University in Richmond, Virginia. In this episode, Sherry Osteen talks with Lakeisha about the power of play and the usage of the body as a locus for doing theology through engaged and embodied pedagogical practices. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Keisha, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So let's start with the topic of play. I'd love to hear how this has emerged for you as a focus in your work. Play is essentially my life. I love it. Um, But it's become both a a lens, like a a lens and perspective in which I view the world now, as well as a methodology that I use when I'm teaching and when I'm working. So it's become this, this way to do life, this epistemological, like this way of knowing (laughs) and just kind of uh, being in, in the world of through play of seeing things from uh, moving my body and and I know I'll probably define it, define it more later, but it's the space of viewing people, viewing things in my classes, how I run them. I always involve play. I involve playful approaches, playful tactics. And anytime I get stuck, it's been a space where I can step back and say, hey, let me just play for a minute. Let, let me re- recalibrate. It's just been that great space that I've had. And it's emerged in literally everything that I've done. So is it fair to say that play feels like kind of home base for you in a sense of something you just have to keep coming back to? Absolutely. It's like, no matter what, it's not only do I come back to it, but it always keeps coming up in all the things that I do. Because in the beginning, it was just kind of a, what I did on the side to relax. Uh, But then over time, I realized, no, this is the work for me. It is also amazing, fun, exciting work that actually gets me to the next place, that actually gets me where I need to go. So it's a modality, a a vehicle, and a lens. It's become (laughs) all-encompassing. So at what point did you know, because of course we all know kids play, it's totally intuitive for them, right? But then in a sense, people kind of grow out of it or it gets compartmentalized for people into certain places or parts of their life. When did you know that this could be not just part of your, your scholarly life, but the focus of your scholarly work too? Um, thank you. Uh, actually, that probably didn't happen until probably seminary-ish time frame. Um, Because in the beginning, I didn't realize it was a thing. I just thought I was a playful person. I just thought I liked to dance and I liked music. Um, And that was just how I understood God for me in the world. And it made sense that when I wanted to communicate, I found these creative outlets. You know, I find that my creator created me, so I must be a creative being too. And so I just thought it was just how I was in the world. Um, And just kind of as I was in seminary, I was just realizing that that wasn't the case for everyone. (laughs) And I realized. (laughs) Is that as you were sitting through lectures? Exactly. I was like, you know, people, they were listening to these other lectures and they were just so excited. They just didn't speak to me in in certain ways um, that they did to other people. There we go. They spoke to people in different ways. And I realized that for me, I needed kind of that mind-body connection, that I felt like everything was so much in the mind that I was forgetting my body. And especially as a woman of color, I don't get that option to forget my body ever in life, really. And so for me, it was, well, how come my work also isn't embodied? Like it has to be meaningful. It has to be moving for me. And so I realized that this was a unique way that I was understanding the world. 
Um, and I found that several other people of color felt similarly, but there wasn't a thing it was called or what I knew. So then I kind of started doing research and I realized, oh, all of the things I do are part of like play. And so it kind of just started coming to me and then I did more research on it. And, you know, once I put that word out there in my mind, I realized other people had written some things about it. So I did some research and just kind of followed it and it kept leading me to places. So I just kept with it. <laughs> so as a womanist theologian, this idea of embodiment seems really significant. So can you talk about how that's integrated with play for you and maybe provide some examples? Oh, sure. So uh, for me, it's like embodied play, right? So well, one of the ways I define play is as an embodied <laughs> aesthetic experience. Like it's play involves the, the body in some way, right? It's an experience. So you're not talking about me playing games on my phone. I mean, but it can be that as well. It all, it all depends, right? <laughs> it depends on how embodied you get with this game on your phone, right? It, 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 it's okay. still a, a part of it. Um, but for also for me, it play becomes this, this cultural expression. And that's for me where a lot of the womanist piece comes into it is that play can also be a cultural expression. I, you know, I remember being a, you know, a little girl and playing double Dutch, right? And for me as a black girl in the black community, double Dutch was huge. It was hard work and I fell a whole lot, but it was this space that gave me agency. It was the space where I was able to name myself and I could make decisions where other parts of my life, I wasn't able to do that. And so for me, that play, it, it, it involved my body, it involved agency, it involved calling things out. And it was a space of freedom almost for me. So it had to involve the body for me, especially as a black girl that, you know, often my body was objectified. And so it was just this space of like reclaiming and owning and freedom for me that I, I needed. And I think that I, I've needed, even as an adult, as, as things have shifted and changed, you know, more baggage, more, more of the isms happen in life as you grow. And play just continues to be that space of agency of me reclaiming the body, which is why it's so important to have the embodiment with it. And I mean, womanism, you know, which is a term that was coined by, you know, Alice Walker in her, her prose in search of our mother's gardens talks about womanism and how it's about, you know, being grown up, but how, you know, you're loving other cultures and people sexually and non-sexually and the thriving of community and music and dance. So it naturally incorporates play. It's already part of it. It's already saying this is who we are by nature. We're nature, naturally rhythmic people. We're naturally playful people just by nature of who we are. And it's just, how do we make sure we do that, but do it unapologetically and don't see it as less than, but see it as part of our whole experience and value it and give it space. That's what I really like to do. That's really great. Thank you. And womanism, correct me if I'm wrong, also um, integrates not just your own bodily experience, but a more communal sense of embodied experience, doesn't it? Yes. It's uh, one of the tenets is about being committed to survival and the wholeness of an entire people, right? So it's even though we start from the experience of the Black woman of, you know, this is has been our experience, we're about the thriving of all people, all community, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, all of those. We want everyone to get free together, right? We want, we want all of us to get there, but we realize that it's also something about our unique experience as Black women that helps us highlight the experiences of others. So yes, we're we're about everyone getting there. And I believe for me, play is also, again, part of that because I feel like everybody plays. I, it, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter any of that. We can all play together. And I often am watching my nieces and, or, you know, and even now my son, how they're playing with other people. And they're not worried about it, whether it's a 
whether they're, you know, gender non-conforming, they're not worried about what the color of this person is. They just want a play partner. And I'm like, if we could do more of that as adults, where we would be in the world would be a beautiful, beautiful place. <laughs> so in part, you're trying to like recapture that spirit, that childlike yeah. spirit. Yeah, like just bringing it back to adulthood and realizing that we can still play, like we can still be responsible and adults and that play doesn't just have to be this frivolous thing, but we can play on purpose and we can, you know, say, hey, I'm going to engage and remember that even as I'm doing it, I'm going to remember that I can learn across difference. Just like when I'm playing, you know, we might have the same game, but we had different words growing up. You know, that, that's happened to me before where someone culturally is from a different culture and we were playing, you know, Miss Mary Mac or something, some hand jive game. And we just had different words, but it was the same kind of thing. And we shared with each other and we learned with each other. And it's this beautiful space of sharing and being able to learn across difference without the isms, without all of the harsh things that we often put on each other. But it's something about when you share space and you embody and you play with the other, you see someone in a different light now. So you don't just see a random person, you see another embodied person and you seem a little different, a little more respect, a little dignity. It just, I can treat you as a person. We played together. Um, it just brings something different to the space. I love how that kind of lives between something that's completely particular and contextual and yet it's very universal. It seems to it live is. in both of those worlds. It does. And I, I, I love the way that, um, it, just, it brings about possibility. So it does the both and, but then also part of it is it brings out kind of the core truth. Uh, a DW would, Winnicott would say like the core truth and the true self of, of who we are because it, it involves both the cognitive and the affective and the physical. It's like a mind body mixed situation. And it just brings about so many of these pieces that, you know, of how we make meaning, how we understand the world, agency, formation, how our identity in the world. It just... It does so much, <laughs> but, and yet you say, oh, I'm just having fun. I'm just playing. And yet so much else is happening at the same time. All right. So I have to ask you as an educator, how do you think that we got to this place of isolating education in the cognitive sphere? <sighs> so I think that is <laughs> a very European sense of doing things of this is, what it means to, to do this work is you have to read these authors, you have to know this language, you have to do this, and that is what it will mean to be a professional. And I mean, think about it. Most of the books that were there were written by, you know, European, mostly Caucasian men. Um, and it was kind of what they said mattered. And again, they're not talking from a lens of a person of color or a woman. So they're leaving a lot of voices out just by the nature of that's not their experience. And so naturally there are ways of being that are not included, which means the body is sometimes left out. And so I think it's because one group was talking and doing all the talking and not inviting others to the conversation. I think that we, we missed out on realizing it's a fully embodied experience. And I think that that has, they set the stage for what education was. You know, they had seats at the tables when others didn't. They made the rules. I mean, even now, when I think about um, religious education, we still have a ways to go. I mean, you know, why, why is it that, you know, to get tenure, it's all about publication, as opposed to what about these creative sources that we can, you know, that we're helping people with their work, that we're, you know, being creative and helping our community, that we're being, you know, do, doing these various things, but those don't count at all. At what point do we realize that to be a part of a community, to get tenure, to say that I'm educating involves more than just what's on the page, but 
what's happening outside the four walls of a particular institution, how it's, it's it needs to impact our community. And so I just think we still have a lot of work to do, but I think play and the spirit of play can help us think more creatively, more innovatively. I mean, even by the fact that our brain synapses shift and move differently when we play, <laughs> anytime you move your body, you think differently. And so how do we welcome that? And I think it has to start by tearing down some of these old norms that have already been in place and putting new ones in and realizing we're at a different place and it's okay to be embodied and to be creative and to value that and to show that it's valued by saying this is part of what it means to get tenure or this is part of what it means to get promoted is that we are now valuing creativity and innovation, not just publication. All right, so help us think about this. I assume most people listening to this podcast have been in a classroom before. Some, if not all of us, may have done this in the context of higher ed. So we probably know what a lecture looks and feels like. But help us crack open our imagination. What do you do in your classroom Mm -hmm. to shift out of that mode? Help us think about it more concretely. Oh, I love it already. (laughs) Okay, so come with me, everyone listening. Come with me. We're going to go on a little journey. It's called Keisha's Class. So this is actually what I have done in the class. So um, you come in and there, you know, you're, you have your seat and the professor puts on music, uh, preferably the cha-cha slide. And I play it and I say, let's dance however you want to dance and just move how you see fit. And everyone proceeds to get up. Some stay in their seats and just watch. And we do the cha-cha slide together. And after the cha-cha slide, and by this time, you're laughing and you're joking, number one, because you're laughing at yourself because you're doing the cha-cha slide in a class uh, as an adult. Uh, But two... And if you're like me, you're doing it very (laughs) poorly. Or you're doing it well, or you're making it your own. However you're doing it, you're doing it. Or or you're observing and you're sitting down. Either way, you're you're feeling the spirit of the room. And more than likely, you're going to make eye contact, even though you try to avoid it. You're going to make eye contact with probably two or three people. And it's going to get a little awkward. And then it gets amazing. Because then you're laughing and you're smiling at the awkwardness and the wonderfulness that happens. And then after, it's this space of, how did that feel? right? I'm like, what did that feel like? And it's this space of, oh, it was weird, but it was fun. And what did you see? What did you notice? I saw my classmate. Oh, you saw, you know, what did you notice that we're all dancing and that we can all have a different dance. And yet there is space for all of us, no matter what our dance is like, no matter if we sat or if we didn't, there's still a space for all of us. So we can always begin learning from that space of, we can start by seeing each other differently. So my goal is always to take us somewhere different first. I invite in the readings, I invite in these things, but there are places where we can play, we can dance, we can move, that we can bring that in. And I do it in the beginning, that way I'm setting the stage for my entire class so that you never know what to expect (laughs) any given day um, or throughout. Or if, for example, like when things happen in class and I get really moved by an example, I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know, we were talking about seats at the table once, right? Like how, you know, who has the power and authority or reading Freire, you know, talking about power and authority and the oppressed and the oppressor and who has seats at the table. And so I was like, well, let's sit at the table. And so literally we, in that moment, what does it mean to take the time to be embodied, to remind ourselves we can play with this, to move all the tables and chairs, 
put one table there and say, sit down. Okay, so what does it mean to have a seat? Do you want a seat at this table? What does the table itself represent in the power? And like even just to be embodied in that moment to, to move, to change perspectives, you see things differently. You can move differently. It hits your body in a different way because you're embodying it. And it's that space of moving and playing that allows you to see and move and be different um, in a space. And it welcomes it. And it really breaks down a lot of the barriers, especially that first day when everyone's dancing. It's like, hey, we dance together. There's no turning back now. We are you know, in it's, this. We're good now for the rest of the semester. We're in this together. And that's the beauty of it. And I have found that the classes that I started with dancing, the students had a bigger bond and saw each other and were more respectful when they mm. disagreed versus that's when I beautiful. didn't. And to me, that makes a difference. Yeah. Wow. To create a space in which, one, people can disagree, but then they can do it in a way that might be constructive. Exactly. It's, uh, it's what I think Moltmann would call a counter environment, right? An environment where we're able to be brave and to risk, but to know we're doing it in an environment that they've helped create with each other. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's beautiful to be a part of. All right. So I have to ask you this question, given our current moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm interviewing you yes. within a week of the COVID-19 pandemic um, breaking out in the United States, I should say. Um, Mm -hmm. Other countries have obviously been dealing with it for far longer, but we're shifting a lot of these classrooms into the online space. Is there a way you found to replicate that kind of play and embodiment in a world, even an educational space that's primarily digital right now? Yes. Thank you for this question. I love this one. Um, and I, I have, and I'm, we're, I'm, you know, I'm doing it right now with my, my classes that I'm teaching on that are now digital. Um, I'm inviting them to be more playful where they are. And I'm inviting them to take pictures of their playfulness. I'm inviting them to do videos of their playfulness. Um, and again, to remind them that we can make space for that. So um, I currently have them working on a, you know, they had to do a project. It's we're, we're evaluating their ministry setting. It's an education in context. It starts by evaluating, you know, what things your church might need to work on, you know, what's the, you know, what's happening at your, your context. Um, and one of my evaluative methods is to do a cajita sagrada, which uh, Laura Rendon talks about in her work is a sacred box. And so essentially they go and ask their community, whether it's a youth or whomever, and say, hey, can, you know, I want you to make a box about, our context, what you think the the feeling of it is, what questions you have, what we do well, what we don't do well, and create it. And so now I have my students doing this, um, right? So I'm having them invite the people in their context, doing it digitally as well. So virtually, you could have a box on Facebook, or virtually, you could have a box somewhere else, and then you're sharing it with the class, or they're taking the pictures, and they're sending you the compilation of pictures, or they're sending a series of videos that now you're getting, and now you're sending our class videos. So it's not just for our class, but it's also impacting their communities too. And it's just that constant reminder of how we can, you know, make play kind of this contagious thing, and we can take something that seems like, you know, a mundane evaluation, but but put some oomph in it, put some play in it and make it alive. And I think, especially right now, I think people need a lot more play in a space where we're social distancing. And some of us that are extroverts, I find it very hard (laughs) to Mm -hmm. be socially distant. Um, While the introverts are probably enjoying this a lot, which is fine. um, Uh But how do we still find those playful moments? And we're also, you know, doing discussion. We're doing Zoom calls where we're actually interacting with each other and we're laughing and joking online together. So it's, um, yeah, there are, I mean, I think there are lots of ways. I think we just have to be creative and innovative about how we pull each other in 
together right now. Well, you've also written a little bit about uh, your side hustle as a Zumba instructor, <laughs> although I'm guessing it's not a side hustle. I'm guessing it's pretty integrated into who you are. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, if you will. Absolutely. Well, I will say sadly, because I just I recently had a, a little one, so I'm not instructing at the moment, but it is one of my just loves. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love to dance. I studied abroad in Spain and they taught me how to do salsa and bachata and you know just merengue the right way they would say when I, when I went um <laughs> that's what they would say um and you know for me you know any class I teach it's about being being your embodied self in that space and letting your body see the body of another right because for me that's what you know when we're learning when we're teaching all of it is is about just being embodied with people together and learning across difference and it's always beautiful to see you know walk in a gym of you know 50 or so people. And, you know, I had an older white Caucasian man. I had a, you know, a woman that was from China. I had a student who was, you know, uh, studying abroad from Switzerland, I believe. Um, and just, just, you run the gamut of who's there and they're all just dancing and they're all moving their bodies. And then you see them look at each other and smile at each other. And then they're making coffee dates after. And then, I mean, it's, it's this contagion of, hey, we're embodied together and now we can go be together in the world regardless of our differences, right? And not just regardless, but we can talk about them and we can say, yeah, we're different and yet we can still move together. I love that you're describing yes. that kind of joy as a <laughs> contagion right now. That's so beautiful. Thank you. And I'm laughing at myself because I would be that person in your class who would have no idea how to move. I'd be like, oh, please don't oh, make me goodness. do that. Please don't make, like I grew up with prohibitions around dancing. So I'm not saying I won't. It just takes, takes some prodding. <laughs> and I bet it's glorious. Oh. <laughs> All right. So on a slightly different note, you've also thought about how bodies can be sites of like a playful site of resistance. Yeah. Can you say what that means? Of course. Um, I alluded to it a bit earlier, uh, but about how our bodies, especially for some people, uh, play is not always um, seen as a good thing, right? Or sometimes we can be taken less seriously, especially if we're, you know, persons of color, if we're playful, we're not serious. Or if we do things a certain way, a playful way, it's, you know, we're not a scholar, we're not that. And that's one of the things I've constantly combated in my in my work is is getting people to understand that play is is not just frivolous that it's meaningful that there's something behind it and so what i mean by that is again so when you pair that play can be you know f considered frivolous and you think about the bodies of many people of color and for me specifically for black women that's my experience that has often been objectified that has been commodified that has you, you name it has been mistreated abused just even historically even now um and I think about how we can use play as a way to push back and take back our agency. We use play as a way to say, regardless of how you objectify me, regardless of how you're coming at me, I'm still going to play in spite of, and I'm going to do it unapologetically because I can. And I'm taking back and I'm naming myself for myself, right? And again, this isn't just you know, play as in, oh yeah, I'm going to play, you know, Monopoly or I'm going to be outside. I mean, though I'm including that, but I'm also saying the kind of embodied play where, you know, you had a woman that climbed a flagpole <laughs> in South Carolina and took down the Confederate battle flag, right? That was an act of, you know, being this embodied aesthetic experience and using your body as a site of resistance. 
and in, in a way. And so it's like we can use our bodies and take back that space and we can do it in playful ways. And again, my, my, my definition is of this embodied experience that's also a cultural expression. And so it's a little more wide ranging when I explain it that way. But it's it's those kinds of moments where we, we can do those things and we can use our bodies um, and be as playful sites of, of resistance to push back against all of those that would choose to name us and, and name ourselves for ourselves and create spaces of agency and really own our own epistemological and ontological realities, those spaces where we've come to know and come to be who we are and own it. So Copeland writes, the body is the medium through which the person as essential freedom achieves and realizes selfhood through communion with other embodied selves. It's kind of a lot for someone listening to a podcast, so I'll read it one more time. The body is the medium through which the person as essential freedom achieves and realizes selfhood through communion with other embodied selves. So I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, uh, I would love to. First, I'm a huge fan of Sean Copeland. She's an amazing person. And I had the privilege of her being on my committee and when you read sentences like this, you're like, oh my gosh, she's brilliant. She's saying such amazing things, but she's actually like that in person. She just spouts wisdom all of the time. And you just want to always, if she says something, I'm like trying to record her because I don't want to miss it. At one point, one time she said, she said, theology should be incendiary. And I was like, oh, that just spoke to my soul. So just know that she's like this all the time. She's amazing. Um, <clears throat> but this particular, this particular piece is I love how she's talking about, because she's talking about bodies and especially, you know, bodies. And I think at this point, she's talking about like race and bodies of color and black the black body. And in this particular piece, she's talking about uh, the black body and in particular. And I love it because she's talking about, you know, this, this freedom that we're trying to achieve is never realized until we're doing it with other embodied persons, right? She's really about, yeah, you can get free, but if you're not, if you're getting free by yourself, then what's the point? The whole point is to do it with other embodied people because that's what it takes. It takes embodied people doing this work, this work together. And I think that's the beauty, again, for me, of play is that we're doing it together. Your, your, your embodied self is realizing the embodied self of another. And you're saying, hey, you're of value, you're of dignity, you're amazing, and we can help each other get free. And maybe we can rely on each other and be in community and solidarity together and help help us get to get there together. Because um, you realize so much more about yourself when you're in community with others. And so it's that beautiful So it's experience. not just about escape. No, no, it's that, it's that community. It's that, that, that communal embodiment that... We, we can play by ourselves, absolutely, and we realize a lot. And it's also when we play in community, we realize a lot more. And so it's that beautiful, embodied, communal experience as well. So you've answered this in part already, but how have you begun to see your body as a site of theological reflection? <laughs> and how might you help others do the same? Yeah, I mean, I guess my hope is that I, I, I do it every day. I do it by being authentically myself and doing it unapologetically. I do it by getting up and dancing when I feel like it and letting my son watch and inviting him to dance with me, right? I do it by, you know, not apologizing when I, you know, move all the tables in a class and I'm like turning it over because I'm like, we don't even need the table. We need to create just spaces of intersection and relationship or, you know, moments where hopefully I'm I'm passing that on and hopefully I'm I'm using myself because I'm I'm saying, hey, 
there was a time when I wasn't able to do this. There was a time when I was really judged for being playful and I was considered not serious and not a scholar. And yet I'm saying, no, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it unapologetically and I'm going to have fun and I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to laugh and smile and I'm going to pass that on. And so I think I'm constantly using myself and and, and my body and my my work as, as sites of, of reflection on who I am, who, who God has created me to be and giving and hopefully making that counter environment and that space for other people to do the same, right? So maybe it's not play for them, but hopefully I'm creating the space where they can figure out what that is for them. They can figure out who they are, who they're called to be, or as I like to say, the the puzzle piece that, you know, you have been created to be and, and where you need to go in the puzzle, right? Um, and I just think that that's the beautiful part of it. So I think it's, and I think it's always a, a consistent thing. It's, it's, it's constant. So we've, we've talked a little bit about what some of the implications might be in a classroom. And you mentioned a few different things that you think even like tenure, um, how that might be approached differently. I'm curious for folks who are pastors serving in a congregational context, what are some, what's some of the potential that you see for them? Oh goodness. So this is one of my favorite because most of the students that I teach are local pastors. And so it's this really great place of, we actually do these in class. A lot of this is just, it kind of comes up on the, in the moment and we talk about it. So we did clay and we invited them to do clay sculptures of, of where they want their church to be. And so a lot of different things that people had. One did a, a clay sculpture. I think it was a pomegranate on the outside. But then when you opened it, it was a, an orange and how they want their outside to match their inside, which I'm like, that's super powerful, <laughs> Right. They say that, you know, that the outside of our building looks beautiful and wonderful and welcoming. But when you come in, sometimes it's just not right. Right. That was that was like the what was reflected. And it's like there are so many ways that we can learn mm-hmm. and be playful. We can, you know, bring again the arts, dancing and, and painting and things like clay. Um, but even just from the pulpit, what would it mean to to take a moment to not just, you know, pass the piece and have people talk to your neighbor, that kind of thing, but to play from, you know, to be playful in a sermon, to to, to sing together, to, to offer a song or, you know, this is one of my favorites when I do, I do vocational play workshops. And one of the things that I do is I talk about um, red light, green light. And I love it so much. And I, 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 I challenged one of my students to do it in, in, in a sermon. And he did. And he said it was amazing. <laughs> um, but he invited them to, to get up during the middle of a sermon. And because he was talking about kind of what next steps were and, and how we and how we transition. And he talked about, yeah, because, you know, red light, green light. If you're at a red light and you're stopped, oh, how do you wow. go again? How do you move to that yellow light? Right. Like and that's kind of what I talk about is I say, how do you move from a red light to a green light? You know, what if you're in a green light? How do you move to a yellow light when you know sometimes you need to slow down and take some self-care, right? And so he invited them to do that in an actual uh, sermon. And he said they've never been the same since. <laughs> so it's just something really powerful behind risking. Like it, that, that was a risk. His, his congregation was a very, we sit down, we take it in and we leave when we're done. But what does it mean to risk and to try something wow. different, to be a little more playful in your in your sermon, to be playful in your reading, maybe to do a dramatic scripture mm-hmm. reading uh, and invite some people to, to read it with you? What would it mean to invite some people to come up and actually, in you know, act out what you're doing? You know, um, Augusta Boal and Theater of the Oppressed is really great stuff to use as well. So what does it mean to say that there's another way the story can be told and we can embody it and we can enliven it and you can feel it in a different way? So there's so many ways. Yeah. 
So I think the one that probably sticks with me the most is the one about Balaam. I really like that narrative because it's it's this beautiful space of you can see yourself from different angles. So sometimes, you know, you're Balaam and you don't always listen to the donkeys in your lives. You don't always listen to those people that you might see as less than, or you might not always listen to them, even when they're trying to help you, even when they're giving you amazing guidance. Um, but then in reverse, sometimes you always feel like you feel like the donkey and you feel like the Balaams don't listen. And, and how do you make sure your voice gets heard? And how do you, you know, not let yourself continue to be, you know, abused? And so it's just this space that I feel at different times in my life, probably I felt like a, a the donkey and I felt like a Balaam. And so I feel like that one tends to speak to me. And I think it also plays out really beautifully when you act it out <laughs> and you get yes. to be real, like, I told you to not go this way. You know, you can really put some oomph in it and it's, it's just exciting and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you act it out, it just, it just hits a little differently. I think a question I would probably really like to ask is, is are we doing double Dutch? Because I feel like we all should be doing it more. And so I feel like, yeah, just to ask our institutions, are we, are we jumping rope or are we doing double Dutch? And I probably need to explain what that means. I use double Dutch as like a metaphor, but um, jump rope. So jump rope, one rope, right? And I usually liken that to, you know, just if we're thinking tradition, we're thinking one, you know, white European male cis heteronormative rope that is only meant for one kind of one thing to jump. Um, and that's often, especially in the, in, in the academy and in institutions, you know, that was what the norm is. You know, you need to write this way. You have to be this way. You have to say it this way. It has to sound this way. Um, you have to read this narrative. You have to know this language. But the beauty that I believe Double Dutch brings is that it means you need to add another rope add another rope. For me, it might be womanism. For you, it might be, you know, sexual orientation, but whatever it is, like, what does it mean to add more ropes? Or as W.E.B. Du Bois would say, like a double consciousness, add another way to think, another language, another way to see people, another perspective. And maybe that's play, maybe that's not, but whatever it is, we shouldn't be jumping rope anymore and just having things be one way. We need to be doing multiple so that we're not just reaching one group or we're hearing multiple voices, multiple global voices and experiences and understandings and ways of being in the world and ways of making meaning in the world. And I feel like if we're just, if we're not doing the hard work of double Dutch, because beautiful thank you so much keisha i really appreciate the conversation you've been listening to the distillery at princeton theological seminary interviews are conducted by me dale rounds and me sherry osting our producer is Ni Otto abrams and our assistant producer is amara peterman the distillery is part of the thread an online platform with resources on culture spiritual formation and leadership to find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.